You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets in one day could kind of disrupt your sleep if you don't take action. And this was the challenge faced by the cosmonauts on Space Station Mir on August 20th. They covered up their windows to mimic the nighttime on planet Earth below. This way they could sleep in their phone booth-sized containers and tethered sleeping bags. In a way, it was metaphoric, as cosmonauts did not allow the news below to disrupt their mission. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Whoever was in control of the USSR at the moment, the crew wakes up on August 19th and August 20th. They shower, they breakfast, they do their work consisting of scientific experiments, needed maintenance, from 10 to 1 p.m., followed by an hour of exercise, gravity pulls on the body, and an hour's lunch break. Three more hours of work, and then another hour of exercise, and the crews begin preparing for their evening meal at 7 o'clock. They have spare time, and in that time, crews were able to observe the beautiful earth below. They could respond to letters, drawings, and other items that were brought to them Soviet citizens who had written them and whose letter they had get an answer and receive an official USSR stamp from outer space. There are also books for the cosmonauts to read, and they can talk to ham radio operators on Earth. Yes, two amateur call radio call signals, U1MIR and U2MIR, were signed to the Mir in the late 1980s, allowing those amateur radio operators on Earth to communicate with the cosmonauts. Just a month before, astronauts on Mir had completed a well-publicized TV spacewalk, and one of the cosmonauts climbed to the top of the truss of the space station and attached a Soviet flag, red with the hammer and sickle, and mounted it to a metal frame. Gordest. It was completely on the astronauts' own initiative, Remya News stated adding, It is not difficult to understand why Artsibarsky and Krikalyov placed a Soviet flag atop the girder. After all, our country has not totally fallen apart yet, and there are still things which we do better than anyone else in the world. This was going to be trouble. Those burly drunks were talking trash from the moment the train doors open onto the platform. What have they been drinking all day and now mouthing off at everyone, including the returning commuters, but also women and children looking for a fight? That's what they were doing. And they focused in on two youths. The one drunk got in their faces. You are not so tough. Yanusha, so noi. Why, I can... Just like that. The drunk ends up face first in the snow. Yes, eto, piani. And the other burly drunk says merely, What is that? And all that can be seen is the second man, carried by his legs and into the snow. Idiot. Vladimir Putin couldn't help but admire how his friend Volodya took care of things. That's what that is. And that's what happened when people messed with Volodya. He didn't start fights, necessarily, but he took care of problems when it came. They were both young men of the courtyard, the cigarette-butt-littered courtyard of nobody's dream, of nobody's architectural plan, but many a childhood, the overcrowded housing projects, and Soviet latchkey kids that were the reality, moms and dads working many hours to meet deadlines six days a week, the kids drinking, kicking a soccer ball, smoking, yelling at each other, fighting, probably a daily ritual. Putin was refused the pioneers, which marked him early as a troublemaker. But he had an ambition to study himself and learn sambo and judo, very difficult martial arts. And he did. 
The dream of every other kid was to be a cosmonaut. Vladimir wanted to do something else. Get a KGB job. The stuff of movies. Especially the one movie where he saw the agent was in Germany, defending the country. His parents weren't happy with the choice, but were happy that he chose something. The other courtyard kids were headed to an alcoholic pension later in life. If they continued down this path, Putin studied German at St. Petersburg High School 281 and spoke German as a second language. He'd go to college and join the Communist Party. KGB wasn't easy to get into. It took a lot of years, but he did. He monitored foreigners and consular officials in Leningrad for the agency. And he'd eventually get that post he wanted in East Germany. East Germany was in some ways the dream of a KGB agent for an assignment. It was in some ways a more effective secret police than the KGB was in Russia. The Stasi, the East German police, had a better telephone monitoring system and more efficient records on its citizens. Its leader, Honecker, earned his chops because of how fast he put up the Berlin Wall under the noses of the West in the 1960s. The East German secret police had great records. But for Putin, it was not the exciting KGB work that he thought. It was even boring, confined to a little government house. Putin and his colleagues were reduced mainly to collecting press clippings, thus contributing to the mountains of useless information produced by the KGB agency. So said Russian-American Masha Gessen in their 2012 biography of Putin, The Man Without a Face. While the country rolled around him in Germany and eventually tore the wall down, there was poof, no East Germany anymore. From reports, Putin did what he could to salvage as many records he could to transfer to the KGB because the country was an open revolt and intent on punishing and persecuting former Stasi members. It left no one's attention in the small group of KGB in East Berlin. The vastness of records being kept on citizens, of being uncovered by some revolutionary group, was on the minds of everyone who worked in the KGB offices. For Putin, devolving of East Germany led to a lack of interest in the agency, and he left. He resigned. Or did he? By the time you get to August 20th, 1991, Vladimir Putin is serving as deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. It's the center of Russia's budding democracy movement. He is ostensibly one of the Democrats. He grew up in St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, and was not born a Democrat by any means, but to hear the infamous and improbable story, he was studying in the university to work on his post-KGB career, and he happened to run into the new mayor of St. Petersburg, Sobchak, democratically elected mayor, a new thing. And right there, Sobchak said, I need a person like you, Vladimir, and gave him a job. People in the mayor's office and around the city thought otherwise. They thought, who is that man in that office, the one that says nothing? He handles contracts, was the answer. Foreign work. Suspicious Leningradians who knew what was up knew that every local government office had KGB on staff. And in St. Petersburg, it appeared that was theirs. You never left the KGB. There was an invisible reserve. But no, according to the story that Putin still tells, he had resigned years ago, and he also said on the day of the coup, he wants no part of it, and resigns again. He reaffirms his resignation. To hear his story, he's one of the heroes, resisting the tanks and the barricades, taking it to the system in the square as the coup begins. When I saw the faces of the criminals, criminals, the worst insult a KGB can say about a person, I knew it would end in failure. His story continues that he goes on rallying factories all day, getting the workers to resist. Indeed, there is an incredible amount of resistance in St. Petersburg right now. If not for Yeltsin getting on the tank, I believe the news coverage of resistance to the August coup would always be the size of the protests in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. It's much larger and in the city square. And as we know, the city's mayor, Sobchak, has been to Yeltsin's dacha on Monday morning. Okay, that coordination is important, but he did leave deputies and council members kind of in charge of the city, not sure what to do, waiting for him 
to give instructions. And he gets back on Monday afternoon and, as we know, dodges arrests in the airport per his story. He was expected to speak at the crowd, at the rally, to stir the passions of people. But he does not make it there. Instead, he meets with the Soviet military commander in the region. Why, he says, this is just a smart thing to do. We talked about his story in a previous episode. It was his intuition that he was going to be arrested. He needed to calm down the military so they would not march in and quell this crowd. But Sovchak's story will be questioned later. He doesn't go to the protest. Cuts a deal with the general. The local Soviet army will not roll in as long as he instructs protests to stay in the square, to not go into every factory, to not go into every street, disrupt life. And one more favor, perhaps. A legend develops that Sobchak and his deputy prime minister, Putin, go around organizing factories to resist the Gang of Eight in Moscow. That's the story that I've always heard about the events of August 19th, especially as Putin rose to power. But there's not much evidence of that. Both of them do go to the largest factory in the city, but it appears that Sobchak and Putin go to this factory because it has the best protected bunker. While thousands grow and crowd in the palace, the mayor makes a TV speech and then goes into a protected bunker. Now, to be fair, no one has evidence that Putin or Sobchak helped the emergency committee in any way on that day. True enough that Putin, as some authors have pointed out, wasn't doing the job of a KGB agent, certainly. Not when Goryuchkov is the head of the KGB is leading the Gang of Eight. He's not towing the line, so to speak. Sobchak certainly condemns the illegal coup on TV, gives directives contrary to the Moscow instructions, Putin is still his right-hand man. Right there is a violation of what a good KGB agent should do, perhaps. But Sobchak also ignores an important instruction from Yeltsin to fire the military commander in Leningrad and appoint a Russian general as head of armed forces in the city. He never, he slides that out of his decree on television. And Yeltsin's deputies pick up on this, but being that they're holed up in the Russian White House, are unable to do anything. They do inform some of the other Democrats in St. Petersburg, what's going on with your mayor? Well, there's theories about this. And in the battle of red flag versus tricolor flag, there is much middle ground. There is hedging. You have tank commanders who will move their units but won't tell them to do anything. The head of the Air Force is like this. He doesn't rebel, and he doesn't take the coup plotters' calls either. There's very little Air Force operations that are occurring on the 19th and the 20th. He instructs Air Forces under his control to only listen to him. And so you have Republic heads, too, making fuzzy statements, trying to see the politics through the dust. And the mayor? Was he doing this, too? With hindsight, many are critical of him. He won't be considered for re-election later in the 90s. Uh, Sobchak will face corruption charges, and they are threatening until his former deputy mayor comes to the rescue, perhaps, and the charges go away. But this all comes later. Back to Moscow. As daylight ends, it's doubly dark defenders of the Russian parliament go into blackout mode for security purposes. It is now a very dark place. With Russia Radio on the air again, and more people aware that there are protests, they go. But it's not like it's an easy thing. Anna Ilinicha tells of her decision to go. They're watching it on TV, and they see the protests in front of the Russian White House. Her mother-in-law says, are you mad? Think of your child. And then when she can provide no more resistance, she says, okay, well, since you are idiots and you will go, take some baking soda in a bag for when the gas comes. These are the type of choices that people are making. Yeltsin finds out from a credible source that Gorbachev is alive. He makes the call. He will be commander-in-chief of Russian forces in Gorbachev's absence. He's commander of all Russian forces in Russian territory, because there is no legal authority. 
That's his decree. In Moscow, the crowd is loud enough now in front of the building yelling, Yeltsin, Yeltsin, that's probably heard far within the city. All the Russian politicians are armed. Cowboys, says one activist. I'm starting to think they never shot anything in their life, these deputies. They just like walking around with guns. Bulldozers are placed in front of the White House, then tractors. Freight vessels pull up against the Russian White House on the Moscow River in support of Yeltsin, which will make it impassable for any military response by water. Women build signs that say, Soldiers, do not fire at mothers. A 100-foot-long Russian flag, blue, red, white, is unfurled. The popular mayor, Popov, of Moscow is here, and everyone cheers. Rutskoy, the vice president that they know, can shoot his gun. He's cheered as well. Russia will have new heroes, it seems, if they're all not executed. A curfew is indeed announced by an emergency committee, making everyone here now performing an illegal activity. Here's Martin Sixsmith of the BBC. The role of the Soviet people was under question. 50,000 is a lot of people, but this isn't a city of 10 million, so that's not an overwhelming percentage. Many more may have opposed the coup in their hearts, but they did little or nothing to put that into practical effect. Strikes occurred, but there weren't enough reporting transport workers to keep buses moving and trains in action, but there were enough workers who showed up to keep buses and trains in action. Yeltsin faced not only the Kremlin's tanks, but also the apathy of the people. Yet, apathy could cut both ways. The Rokery Club, the motorcyclists who were running around town now being the eyes and ears for those defenders of the Russian White House, they ride around Moscow on their motorcycles and say, you know, there aren't like tanks building up. If there's going to be an attack, they have a ways to go. But who knows? With every minute on Tuesday, August 20th, that it gets darker and it gets farther from the novelty of resistance, another night is coming. I don't remember this being a celebration, our time at the White House, said one defender. They were ordering fifth line, seventh line, moving us around. The smell of blood was in the air. The defender described how on the afternoon of the 20th, he and his wife are approached by a woman in medals, calling them phony patriots shouting, who are you fighting for? The imperialists? The Americans? They answered, we are fighting for freedom. We are fighting for our rights and yours, they tell the woman. Not mine. I fought real opponents, Nazis. And if I had my machine gun right now, she said as she stormed away. One heckler isn't so depressing, but they full well know that they're a lot like her in the USSR. Another White House defender said, They said that they had kill lists, and Yeltsin would be first. Still, we said F the junta. Don't write that down, she tells the reporter. This is ingrained. We are a nation of sex, Alberts, the journalist covering the KGB then and now would say, a nation of relatives, prisoners, if not prisoners ourselves, with a mentality that way. Raisa Gorbachev's grandfather was a Zakakulak, peasant farmer, with a few employees, ruled a capitalist and exploiter. Very common. They took his cows, his pigs when he protested. Now he was committing a crime against the state. He was jailed and eventually shot. That is the wife of the USSR president, and even Gorbachev himself had a relative that was at least condemned, if not imprisoned. Everybody felt it. Everybody felt this mental violence, to quote David Sater, that the Russians go through. Untreated trauma, some suggest. Selzanistin tells of a party official who attended one of the endless memorial get-togethers while Stalin was still in charge, and someone mentioned Stalin's name. Now everyone must get up spontaneously and clap. Otherwise, they might not be seen as enthusiastic enough about the leader. It becomes a tragic comedy, he relates, like a dance marathon for minutes, maybe ten minutes, 
then 20. More clapping and looking at each other. People sweating now, really wanting to sit down, mentally cursing at the fool who first mentioned Stalin's name at this event. When finally, maybe it's a half hour in, a brave soul stops clapping and sits down. The audience ah, can do the same. Everyone is relieved. They sit down and get to their business. This tale is told to Solzhenitsyn by the man who sat down first, who was arrested that night and thrown into prison. As we said, Russia, a nation of Zeks, prisoners, no of prisoners, 18 million people, minimum, it's one of the lower of the estimates, imprisoned in Stalin's camps. Solzhenitsyn himself is in prison for merely writing a note criticizing a supervisor under Article 58. He's in prison for counter-revolutionary thoughts. And he does eventually get out. And during the brief thaw during the Khrushchev period, Solzhenitsyn is able to publish A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It is a story of a political prisoner living in a camp, just talking about one day, getting woken up at five in the morning, eating gruel, having to work at hard labor. He has a cold, but there's too many prisoners rolled sick, so he has to get out and work. How he considers it a success that he finds a small piece of metal and is able to hide it from the guards. Maybe that'll become a useful tool someday, that he's able to save a piece of his food for dinner. Little things. His giant work, the Gulag Archipelago, he won't publish until he's already exiled out of the country for some of his beliefs during a period where there wasn't as much openness. The Stalinist political gulag of, of Stalin, say, is closed in 1960. But the prison system never is. For instance, Perm 36, one of the most infamous systems, operates to the fall of the Soviet Union and has political prisoners. It might have had a third of the prisoners under Brezhnev that it had under Khrushchev. It still has prisoners that committed no other crime than extreme Zionism, ultra-nationalist feelings dissident behavior, and people who were just not going to be convinced. Go to Perm 36. It's not closed till 1988. And in 1987, only then do people feel safe enough to make a group, group called Memorial, to honor those killed and those imprisoned by the regime of Stalin. In fact, a proposal is made to the Politburo to honor the victims of political repression during the cult of personality of Stalin. It'll remain a proposal during Soviet time, but eventually a memorial will be built. Notice the wording, too. The cult of personality of Stalin. That is the way that Khrushchev and other critics within the Soviet Union of the Gulag like to refer to it. It wasn't something endemic to the Soviet Union. It was a temporary cult of personality that one man took over. And that's a questionable point, but it was the only way. You could get any type of memorial or thought about rehabilitation and memorials through. You know, the Soviets were not of one mind about this, the gulag and what it did and whether it should continue and in what form. So Zanistin, for instance, is critical of the perestroika period because they're not attacking Lenin enough. They're just focusing on Stalin and his cult of personality. What about all the people killed during Lenin's time? June 21, 1977, the French president, Estaing, the French president, was toasting the general secretary of the CPSU and state president of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev, in Paris. Meanwhile, in a theater in Paris, a group of French intellectuals were meeting, and they weren't happy. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, the stereotype might be, these French intellectuals, right? They're all communists, so they should be toasting uh, Brezhnev. But not true for Simone de Beauvoir, for Sat, and leading the group, Michel Foucault. We can receive other Russian people, Foucault says, people who are friends. And Foucault introduced the dissidents in the Soviet Union who were currently living in Paris. By this time, the Gulag Archipelago had published. A number of escapees were in Paris. There was a whole dysphoria to tell the horror stories. More than that, Foucault was not just interested in talking about Stalinist times. He was disappointed with the institutional Marxism in French unions and student faculty groups, and with some philosophical and political insight that was Foucault's trademark, he's able to see the readoption of the bourgeois value system in what Brezhnev is doing in USSR. At best, it was a country with birth trauma. At worst, Foucault imagined, it was never born. It was simply borrowed the USSR system from the previous system it replaced. Certainly the Red Army really resembled that Tsar Army, and the Czechist KGB really resembled the Tsar's own secret police. Foucault had studied crime and punishment, medical system, and institutions. For Foucault, disillusionment began in the early 70s, as he was researching prisons for his book, Discipline and Punish. One sees the same inhuman variant seen in the Nazi camps, where Jews, communists, political agitators were all in the same group. Today, one sees the same taking shape in a more direct form, a seemingly scientific manner, Foucault said. The infamous psychiatric wards of the Soviet Union. Postmodern Foucault was not fooled by the liberal eye candy of the Soviet Union. It was to him a conservative monstrous place. The USSR, he said, generalizes the psychiatric hospital. It makes it play the role of prison. And when he heard that psychoanalysts were coming back to the Soviet Union in the 70s, who had been banned in the 30s, he said, I fear socialism with a sexual face. In other words, psychoanalysis Freud, that was banned in the Soviet Union. In the 70s, it was back. He did not fear Russians getting better. He feared as the state finding a new apparatus for control. He wasn't mesmerized at all by the USSR. He saw clearly the fear, the terror, the power moves. Foucault wasn't just concerned with terror. He was concerned with things not out in the open. Visibility is a trap, he said. The current society implements a system of power and knowledge. A rise in the level of visibility results in the high power getting centralized on the individual entity brought forward by the process for establishment to attract individuals. He's discussed a lot because of his celebrity status developed in the 70s, rare for a French historian philosopher to be on the cover of time. He also died of AIDS in the 80s. He studied sexuality, which tend to make him a focal point in pop news more than another philosopher. But it all belies the importance of his questions that we'd ask, and those he was raising in his time. Power is everywhere, Foucault said. It is embedded in human relations. Not only negative, there are sometimes positive benefits to it. Some people who are oppressed also receive benefits. He's a better way to understand Soviet life, I believe, where it looks like simple repression, and often it morphs, it's easier to say things aren't like the old days. The individual workers, teachers, students, prisoners are kept under constant scrutiny, and no retreat or privacy is allowed. Thus, the individual has the power to take decisions, to be at the pinnacle of the system, the trap, is that in most cases, the fear of observation by superiors which may or may not be there, is greater than the motivation to do wrong. Disciplined bodies are a subject of information, never a subject of communication. He's complicated. I have to admit, I quote him a lot, and uh, not just because he's popular, but because he's insightful. And I don't always understand it. Some of it's like philosophy poetry. You have to apply it and see what you... But I think in there... 
there's plenty that you can see in all of these five episodes so far that we've talked about. You know, Soviet Union's not about somebody being beat with a hammer or sliced with a sickle. It's about the self-repression, too, and lighter forms of repression. You must be crazy. Go to the psychiatric hospital. Um, Foucault understood that at his time better than anyone. He couldn't stand that his French president was saluting Brezhnev. And you're talking about a guy that was going to see that the Socialist Party gets elected in France in 1980. That should change your expectations of who is on what side of, of the isms. Now, back to the Soviet situation and that whole history of a, both repression direct and repression self-inflicted must be considered to avoid hindsight when thinking about what's happening on August 20th. And there's word spreading. There's a large presence of military in Moscow. It's not just the tanks you can see. For every human in front of the Russian White House defending it, for every mother holding a sign saying, don't shoot mothers, there are six military people in Moscow right now. And more on the way. There's good news to be sure. In Ukraine, miners have been striking throughout the year for wages, and they now announce they are going to strike against this coup. It's already happened in five mines in the far north of Russia, not connected to Leningrad or Moscow at all. It's already happening in a few Siberian mines, though nowhere near the majority of mines in the country. There are some isolated factory strikes. In Moldova, there is a surprising, given the population of that republic, a surprising hundreds of thousands of people in the capital city protesting this coup. And of course, the Baltics have declared their independence. The AP reports that so far the coup that began two days ago has been remarkably short on violence. But tonight will be decisive. Alexander Sonin, a Moscow factory worker at the White House, reports tonight will be decisive. John Major tells the press about his phone call with Yeltsin, he told me he could hear tanks, Major says. He said matters are becoming more complicated even as we spoke. Now there's tension as well. On the Speaker of the Supreme Soviet, we talked about that body that's supposed to rule on matters. It's not quite a Supreme Court. It's more like a Congress. But in, in this situation, it really should be the one that rules on matters. Well, the Speaker of the Supreme Soviet, Lukianov, now meets with Yeltsin. And he says, yes, maybe some of what the committee here is doing is unconstitutional, but he's not willing to meet until next Monday to summon that body. Yeltsin gets on radio and calls Lukianov, an intriguer, not to be trusted. Yes, he's speaking to me, but he's a two-face. He's one of them who inspired the coup. Had the under Glasnost the Red Bear become tame? Was the military still strong? Well, it certainly didn't help when a West German teenager flies a plane right through Soviet airspace and into the Kremlin. Gorbachev is livid, but he also knows an opportunity to dress down the military, to get them down a notch when he needs one. It took three years, though, for a law providing free speech to be passed after Gorbachev's ascension. Yet a lot had changed. People were getting away with a lot. The the parts of the Soviet Union that didn't like being there were eyeing a way out. Villagers in Afghanistan were stopping Russian troops, and no amount of propaganda could cover up the losses. Soviet youths, like their transistors, their cassette players, their Walkman, their records... Every rock and roll song sings of teenage escape. For young adults striving for their own lives, to make their ways, to have freedom. In the Soviet Union, even in the early 80s, this was literal. There was no escape. There was no freedom to leave the country. You needed permission to leave the country. Even post-Soviet Russia, which has many limitations, allowed you to physically get up and move. In the Soviet Union, citizens would have to get permission for that and also be seen as disgraceful for such a request. A hockey player, after much international diplomacy, made his way to play on one of the Canadian NHL teams, but only after a dressing down from the approving military officer of how unpatriotic, how traitorous, how 
imperialist he was. All of this just to seek a better life. For those who are not hockey players or without the support of Israeli or U.S. diplomacy for limited emigrant programs, they had to seek something else, some way to get out. One rock band had a famous song, America, You Were Gone. But they didn't mean the country of America was gone. They meant the concept. America as something different, as something foreign, as an enemy to base your life against. The more information that came out to public of what it was really like versus Soviet propaganda, their America was gone. And thus, a chunk, at least for some of the youth, of their reason for Soviet existence. On November 18th, 1983, seven young people, all sons of Georgian intellectual elite families, people who were wearing jeans and denim jackets, craved a Western lifestyle, attempted to flee the Soviet Union. And the only way that they could conceive of how to do that, to get to the West, was hijacking an airliner. Before they do, they confess to their Orthodox priest. They did not want trouble. They aren't terrorists. They work as painters, actors, and physicians. They merely wanted to leave the USSR. So they pretended to be a wedding party to throw off any authorities from thinking they were a threat. They board the airliner in Tbilisi and then, using smuggled guns, try to threaten the pilots to divert it to Turkey. They believe this is going to be simple. It's not very common for Soviet airliners to be hijacked. Just show them the guns. People are going to be afraid. Nobody needs to get hurt. The only thing they fear is that militia are often on planes, and some passengers might be armed. Well, what they hadn't counted for is the reaction of the pilot and the co-pilot. With guns pointed at them, they both refuse to accede to any of the hijackers' demands. They make sharp maneuvers to prevent the hijackers from taking aim at them. Then they push the hijackers out of the flight deck, but several people are injured as they're doing it. They will not go to Turkey. The pilot circles Tbilisi and calls the police, land in Tbilisi, all against the instructions of the hijackers, who don't expect a standoff like this. The Georgian Communist Party chief, who is future Democratic hero and Russian White House defender, now a party bureaucrat, Edward Sharanasi calls for the deployment of an elite Soviet special unit, Alpha Group from Moscow. It takes time for them to arrive. There are 12 hours of negotiations. Not negotiations, but the Soviets continuing to say no. The, sometimes they'll say that Turkey's refused, they'll lie to them. Turkey's refused clearance. You can't go there. On day two of the hijacking, the Alpha Group is now ready. They storm the aircraft, but it's sloppy. And the incident claims the lives of three crew members, two passengers, and three of the hijackers. The aircraft receives 108 bullet holes during the attack. Not only are the remaining hijackers arrested, including the couple pretending to be a wedding party, but their friend and confessor, the Orthodox priest, were tried by the Soviet Georgian court. Shevardnadze described them as drug addicts, bandits, and demanded the death penalty for the hijackers. And in August 1984, three hijackers were sentenced to death, while their female co-conspirator received a 14-year jail sentence. The priest was declared a ringleader and also sentenced to death. All four men were shot on October 3, 1984. It took a decade for parents to locate the bodies. And many details of this incident, this hijacking of 1983, are still unclear a series of questions remain open. There's been a book about it. There's been a play about it. The play was even censored as late as 2003 in Georgia. Hendrick Smith says, his book, The Russians, one Russian turned to him at one point and said, just because I listen to Jimi Hendrix and wear Jordache jeans, that doesn't mean I won't shoot you if we come to war. The Soviet Union still maintained a hold on the imagination of people as, no less an expert than George Keenan said, as of the 1980s, no one of any seriousness, of any seriousness, had predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. 
This was a proud nation. Part of that was because of America. It was the reverse America. Even if it was a propagandist view of what America was like, a gilded age, an imperialist America, where large slots of the people were homeless and poor and a few suited fat cats ran everything. You know, even if it ignored the middle class. The USSR citizens could be proud because they were standing up to the greatest power in the world and no one else could. We can't forget that the nation had reached heights. Countless former Soviets interviewed said they liked living in an empire. We were a proud country. The world used to fear us. A man kicked out of the writers' union, who had every reason to be anti-communist, suffering for food and housing, treated terribly by the system, still remained true to his ideal. Many who had gotten a raw deal blamed the bad people running things, not the Soviet Union. People here sacrifice for their children, They share their last peasant potatoes with strangers, said the writer. When I see internet discussions among those who had lived in Soviet times, some who still live in Russia, some who live in America or Canada or other places, not everyone trashes the former country. You you will hear things from some who lived in the Soviet Union like, meat was not pink slime there like it is in the U.S. Drywall was not considered construction material like it is in the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Things took a long time, but were made well. You can laugh as much as you want about the disregard for human life in the Soviet Union, but it had never applied to engineering. In the university, I was taught if the breakage of the part could result in loss of life, that part should be designed with ten times safety factor. If it's not, then five times. If somebody came up with the Ford Pinto they would be executed. Still another. There's a reason the only Soviet cultural artifacts that made the trip west are depressing and boring and present the USSR in a bad light. And that reason is not a lack of the opposite. In the metro, in Moscow, in beautiful stations... Stained glass lines the walls and the ceilings. It looks like a dining hall with great chandeliers, wide spaces, and shiny gloss. But no one will be eating here. It is clean and almost looks like a church. does not celebrate religious figures, though. The stained glass celebrates Soviet heroes of air and space and great astronomers under the heading, A Day in the Soviet Sky. And this is what commuters see in Moscow each day. This nation reached upwards. It required science rigorous exams to get into prestigious institutes of math and science. Science was heroic. It is what would make the nation better. And the road to superpower started with those intense classrooms we discussed in the last episode. Pride was seen. Pride in the school, pride in the factory, pride in the barracks, pride in the metro. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. 
In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Who may have started in August 19th and now may be going into the next day, but it may have started with a newspaper article in bold letters in the Sovietskaya Russia. The headline screamed, I cannot forsake principles. The writer was Nina Andreeva, a loyal communist, a teacher, a woman suspicious of the nomenclatura. I cannot forsake principles. Students have been plunged into confusion, she said. Groups have been falsifying Stalin's record. Repression occurred, but it was magnified. Dilettantish reformers are giving up on the class struggle and giving in to the West. I cannot forsake principles. This is what Andreeva writes. And boy, if you've ever got an opponent that you're arguing with in a debate, just call him a dilettantish reformer. The conservative establishment in the Soviet Union in this article, you see, bore some resemblance to that in the United States or other nations now. It was a populist conservatism, was celebrating rural, ethnic, Russian nationalist, peasant stock rallying against the mysterious and increasingly borderline treacherous urban elite. Not religious, unless religion was communism in pure form. That's the way Nina Andreeva would have thought of it. Pure communism. Workers collectively owned the country, not a few power elites, not the nomenclatura. In that way, you couldn't say it was like, say, the Tea Party or MAGA or, you know, American conservative movements because it was supporting communism. The exact thing they would be ultimately opposed to. But in other ways, it was populist. Conservative in terms of the current Soviet system not wanting to change. Suspicious of elites. Suspicious of that change. Suspicious of perestroika. The nation didn't always do great, but it did the best it could. Better than a lot of places. Refrigerators for workers, washing machines, lines, yes. But you had a house, the streets were safe, schools were free, jobs for all, free university if you were good enough, Soyuz, love it or leave it. This article is well read. And it's not the message coming from the USSR President Mikhail Gorbachev. In fact, it's a very different message. In case we think this is strange, in 2011, there was still a Russian poll that showed Brezhnev, Brezhnev, the leader most beloved by Russians. 57% of the poll rated him the greatest leader. Stalin ranked pretty high too, over 50%. Gorbachev, only 21% had a positive image. Stalin did what he had to do, considering all the enemies we had. He shouldn't be judged by the vantage point of today. If you were on the street in Moscow in the 1980s, you might hear some of this. No way he killed that many people. It's impossible. Almost everyone knew something bad happened during Stalin's time, of course. However, it's often mitigated by the doubt about the number of deaths and shared responsibility with local party leaders who committed crimes. They committed the crimes, it was argued, and blamed orders from above. Local party bosses protecting their money, blaming Joe Stalin. He was forced to do it. Many things that aren't false. I think there's a lot of truth to some of that, that a lot of the, you know, killing in the Soviet Union and imprisonment comes from local up as well as top down, but not well researched by the people saying it or making that claim. This letter's printed while Gorbachev is traveling. Everyone reads it. It's all over Moscow and all over the halls of government. It makes Gorbachev look weak. 
When he returned, he demanded, as any Soviet leader would, that there should be a rebuttal in the USSR's party newspaper, and that would be Pravda. There is a rebuttal in Pravda. It attacks the author's defense of Stalin. To defend Stalin, the letter said, is to defend his methods. But the response seemed inauthentic compared to this letter from this average teacher. Now the government weighed in, but only one of two sides in a free speech argument. He blames one of his aides, Ligachev. Ligachev supported reform of the Soviet Union, initially supported Gorbachev, but as his policies of perestroika and glasnost began to resemble social democratic policies, Ligachev distanced himself from Gorbachev, and he stood up to Yeltsin. He was famous for counterpunching. Boris, you were wrong. And Yeltsin would get aggressive at a meeting, something Gorbachev wouldn't always do back. Ligachev would be the, the one saying, Boris, you were wrong. Gorbachev demoted him. Ligachev believed afterwards that Gorbachev was the master of doing something by doing nothing. And by unleashing this ridiculous countrywoman letter so that Ligachev would be blamed for it, Gorbachev reaped all of the benefits. It was to set up something Gorbachev could react to and be able to call leaders out on the hard line and say, what side are you on? Political Sambo, maybe. And the woman who wrote the letter was no stooge. Soviet inner politics was replete with examples of people set up to write letters appearing to be of the people, but actually supporting one faction or the other. Andreev was real, and she became a rallying point for resistance against Gorbachev's reforms and perestroika. On the 19th, she's one of the first to make a statement supporting the emergency committee. In post-Soviet Russia, she would continue to advocate for communism. And she'll say the breakup of the Soviet Union never needed to happen. The voices of the emergency committee might be heard not only in broadcast and press conferences, but also on the street. The voice of conservatives, reactionaries, many, many employees of the Czechists, the KGB, their families, the military, the voices of reliable people, the Soviet Karens, we might say in today's parlance, that would to use that overused term, who would inform and correct the citizens of the Narad who were working in military industries, who live in the outskirts in Moscow. Here says one um, interviewed in secondhand time, we sold out our country for marbles, for jeans, for chewing gum. We were an empire. What's happening is disgusting. I will never get used to that tricolor. The red flag will always flow in front of my eyes. Koryachov, Pavlov, Pugo, heck, maybe even Gorbachev were expecting, were depending upon these type of people to succeed. That's what I firmly believe. And that's what, that's why I wanted to talk about them in this episode. I believe it would be foolish to just take a bunch of tanks and commandeer Moscow. They expected that there would be somewhat of a conservative popular revolt, countermarches to those in the White House. People would remind some that Stalin's funeral was very well attended. In fact, Khrushchev's condemnation of Stalin was not published until 1989, yet people knew of it. In the 60s, there was some truths published and articles allowed publication. In the late 60s and 70s, there was a crackdown on that. And by the time you get to Stalin's 100-year birthday, 1978, it's celebrated widely with only a few critical notes. Yvania Alberts and other reporters at the Moscow News Building start getting reports. There's actual violence. Um, there is shouting and screaming in front of the American embassy in a tunnel located between the American embassy and the Russian White House and underpass. They're getting mean, she says. They're getting mean. They call the American embassy. They're shooting right outside your windows. Are you going to let that happen? Word is that people are getting killed. They're not sure how many. Maybe one has died. Maybe two. Maybe 20. It appears they're trying to stop tanks busting through. So you're going to let that happen. 
The embassy replies, Call Washington. Three men who will be the martyrs of this week's events came from the most honored parts of Soviet society. One was a paratrooper, the other part of a tank crew, and the third worked for the KGB. But each had made a transformation that something different had to happen. Friends say that they were the types that when they heard the sound of rolling tanks, the tanks that would overpower freedom and people's lives, they had to come towards the tanks. There was no other direction for them to go. You have to put yourself in the situation. And to do this, I looked on Google Maps because the locations are still there, though there's different things on them and different names. You catch the sight of the Russian White House, the now called the Federation government, a little bit Art Deco, with equal size square windows and twos, kind of a waffly-like building with a very proud base with big windows in the hall. The design of it, okay, not the building. The building of it took place in the 70s and 80s, but the design of it was from 1934. Not meant to be a fortress uh, that would be turned into today. But you go down from the Krasnopresnenskaya embankment, where it is, and you coast down New Arbat Street. You are going to get to where the Garden Ring Road feeds into New Arbat Street. It's a distance from the Russian White House. But if one is sending a lot of tanks in, it's logical that you're going to use the Garden Ring Road. And it feels very much like New Arbat would be the entrance that APCs and tanks are going to roll down. It has to be held. You know, you can you can see even today the possible military significance. It has to be held. It's a hike from the Russian White House. But at midnight, Crowds now see tanks there, and people rush over maybe a few hundred at first. They've left their station at the White House to do it. It's about 500 yards. They are trying to stop the tanks. There are some barricades here. They realize that the tanks are firing live rounds, and they run to the only place of safety. It's on Novinsky Boulevard, an overpass under the Garden Ring Road. The American embassy is there. As a side note, the embassy's still there. The street has been renamed Donetsk People's Republic Road in order to force Americans to say it because that is a occupied part of Ukraine right now by Russians. Right now it's called Novinsky Boulevard. Americans don't use that address. They use the coordinates instead of the address. But back to 1991. During the day, this tanks had stayed clear of pedestrians. So these guys huddled in the overpass, no problem. Now tanks and armored personnel carriers are following them. Do they plan to crush them all? More are arriving. More people are arriving. And there's a barricade, about six trolley buses, and about 2,500 people come over and block the way of three armored personnel carriers. People unfurl, unfurl a banner that reads, friendship and fraternity. Two of the armored personnel carriers come to a halt immediately, but the third one doesn't, and a crowd surrounds it. It doesn't stop. It picks up speed. Several people now climb on top of it. One of them is Dmitry Komar. He's 22, and he works in a furniture store. But once, he had been a veteran of the Afghan war. He tries to climb through the hatch on top of the unit and was shot. His body flings back, and his foot gets trapped, so he's dangling off the back of the vehicle. Another man apparently rushes forward to help him. He's shot in the shoulder. He'll be one of the 15 wounded at this site today, but he's not killed. Yet another man, Yusuf, an economist, approaches to help. The tank crew is concerned that they will be overwhelmed by the crowd. They know and they see that there are Molotov cocktails and other projectiles. They fire up in the air to disperse the crowd. And apparently, by a ricochet, Yusuf is shot. He's then also trampled by the tractors of the vehicles as they try to bust up the barricades in an attempt to get out. Yusuf has a wife and daughter. He had previously served in a role that he couldn't speak about to his family, but it was known that it was for the KGB. Before he started his own business, Ecom, selling information to private concerns. Then there was Elon Kravchevsky, 28 years old. Kravchevsky is an architect. 
he approaches the tanks. There's no way, his friends say, that he could meet any harm. He was a kind of hippie, one friend said. His nature was very poetic. He wrote poems. He really thought he could stop the tanks. For most of us, tanks are terrifying, another friend said. But Kurchevsky had served in the tank division, so he was not afraid of them. He approaches, and he is shot by the tank crew. The crowd is angered. Troops escape from another armored personnel carrier that has been set on fire by demonstrators. It takes no time for words of these deaths to spread. But no one can help but think that with a little blood spilled, more could come. Something else that will come out later. That Kravchevsky is a fan of heavy metal rock music. He read the Gulag Archipelago. He lived and died, his father said, by the ideals that he illustrated in poems that he wrote. Don't have vain hopes, his father said, quoting from one of his son's poems. Don't have vain hopes. You will not die the way you want to die. This is part five.